like you said, it's not necessarily the doctor. I think a lot of it is the system and the way that the system is designed that kind of forces doctors to cram as much into a very small period of time. And so when you have to do that, a lot of the more nuanced personalization and human interaction gets thrown out. And so that was something I really was striving to remove from my practice was that sort of pressure and burden and just make it about two humans talking. Welcome to Therapist Expanded, where we start a mental health revolution by living our dreams fully and freely beyond industry conditioning and taking every client with us because we'll only take them as far as we've gone. So join me, your host, Aaron Gibb, and my trailblazing guests and be revolutionary by expanding your mind and your life to your freest and fullest potential. Hello, revolutionaries, and welcome or welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm interviewing Rebecca Barron's MD, and she walks us through the journey of leaving managed care into her own medical private practice and how she works with clients from a perspective of health at any size with people with eating disorders and a history of trauma and a history of feeling shamed in the medical system. As I was listening to her words, I thought of all of you out there who are looking for a potential referral for a physician. In the show notes, you will find links to learn more about Rebecca. And she gives us some great insights into what it means to be trained as a physician. And as you might have noticed from this series, because this is part three, there are a lot of connections with this superhuman kind of expectations and what it means for therapists. And in the show notes, you'll also find a link to my Monday Mind Ups email list. This is a bite-sized piece of content that is immediately shifting the mind and it gives you something that you can work with throughout your week so that you can stay aligned with your dreams. So without further ado, here's my interview with Rebecca Barron's MD. Okay. So Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Oh, it's my pleasure. So I'll start with the question we always start with, which is tell us about yourself, your work, and your passions in the field. Yeah. So um, I am a family physician. My practice is located in Houston, Texas, which is where I grew up. Yeah. I have a private practice where I do primary care, practice from a health at every size, um, weight neutral approach. And that's really my passion is working with patients who, you know, previously experienced shame or discrimination in the healthcare system and are looking mm. for a more compassionate uh, care provider. Oh, beautiful. I have so many clients who have come in with that experience. And actually, when I was doing my intake at one point in my career, it was a question of who's your doctor and how's your relationship with your doctor? Because I found that was a huge indicator of how much not necessarily what the doctor was doing, but how could we turn to them as an ally? And it took the client to do that turning towards. And if they'd had a lot of experiences uh, that told them not to do that, it was difficult. Yeah, absolutely. So do you see that then the clients who come to you, patients, I should say? Yeah. Yeah. A, a lot of my patients have had a negative experience with a previous healthcare provider. Many of them have not seen a doctor in some time as a result of that. Um, so we're kind of, you know, playing catch up on a lot of things. You know, it's 
like you said, it's not necessarily the doctor. I think a lot of it is the system and the way that the system is designed that kind of forces doctors to cram as much into a very small period of time. And so when you have to do that, a lot of the more nuanced personalization and human interaction gets thrown out. And so that was something I really was striving to remove from my practice was that sort of pressure and burden and just make it about two humans talking. (laughs) Oh, beautiful. Yeah. I used to feel some anger about the system and especially with my husband who has a chronic health condition. I remember feeling so frustrated. Then I sat in on a session once and it all became clear to me. I was looking through my lens of that. I book people for an hour and a half and his doctor had 15 minutes to get oriented to his entire history. This was a new doctor and try to actually do something meaningful with him, which I think is a task that you doctors, especially in the regular system, I don't know how possible that really is. It's really not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my first job out of residency, my appointments were 10 minute slots. <laughs> um, and I was working in a um, very um, underserved area with a lot of patients who were either on Medicaid or um, self-pay, you know, sliding fee scale. And so a lot, and a lot of, you know, chronic health conditions and health literacy issues. And, you know, it just was an extreme challenge to be able to do that well. And I think, you know, you can do it to for a, per, a portion of time, you can get there, but it doesn't, it takes everything from you and it doesn't last very long <laughs> before you're, you're not able to keep it up anymore. Yeah. That leads me to wonder if keeping it up, like keeping yourself able to do the job is something to do with your passions. Yeah. You know, when I went to medical school and into residency, into family medicine, my, my passion was really to be able to help those underserved patients to provide them with, you know, good quality, compassionate medical care. And I, in the course of my first couple of jobs outside of residency, I realized that the system I was in was not going to function to allow me to do that um, and keep me sane and alive (laughs) at the same time. And so, yeah, I think um, a lot of that experience kind of had me shift more into the way that I do things now and being able to like really spend the time and, and have that human connection with people. Yeah. Yeah. There's a cost. There's such a cost to the system for the practitioner and for the client, the patient. Yeah. Yes. There are such levels of burnout and compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma for any of us in healthcare. And I I interviewed someone before and I don't think we touched on it, but I heard it in their podcast, this term, which is the mass resignation. You're familiar with that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I... I know that uh, the data shows that even before COVID, like in 2019, the stats for health professionals, we were already kind of a frazzled bunch, like a burnt out bunch. And then COVID was just seemed to be the step that people needed to get out. Yeah. I mean, that was obviously on top of the existing pressures that were there. That was a new massive pressure and with very little societal support. You know, if you if you're a physician that has kids or family that you're taking care of and you are expected to go to work and all of your usual social supports are no longer there, it's very challenging to be able to do that. I mean, I remember when I first returned to work after having my son and this was pre-COVID, everything that I did to get up, get ready for work, get him ready for daycare, get home, get, you know, 
pump throughout the day to for breast milk, all of that. It felt like such a perfectly orchestrated routine that if anything was a second off, everything would just collapse. And so trying to do that with the pressures of COVID for a lot of people, I think is just, it was just next to impossible. And, a lot, and I think the other thing was that COVID really forced everyone to take a step back and take stock of what they really wanted to do with their life. Cause you know, it was, it was kind of a confrontation of mortality for a lot of people. Um, Cause you know, people that were previously healthy were dying. People who maybe had mild chronic diseases were dying and it was, you were just sort of confronted with that. And so it was sort of a reassessment of how do I really want to live the remainder of my life that I have here. And for a lot of us in healthcare, we were just hanging on and surviving. Maybe that was no longer what we wanted to do. Um, so yeah, it was definitely an additional pressure on that whole system. Absolutely. I never thought about it like that. The con- confrontation of mortality being one of the reasons people reevaluated. But absolutely, I always thought about it in terms of that all the shoulds and musts that we've all told ourselves, clients, patients, ourselves, when that all dropped away, like when everything went off the plate there for even just a day till people figured out what was going on or a week or however long people felt that sort of, uh, what's my life like now? Yeah. But I never thought about that, but, but all of these factors made it so that when we brought things back on our plate, I think many of us were really mindful of like what to leave off. What, what does not return? What does not enhance thriving because surviving is just so basic. Yeah. Not sustainable. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, especially for, you know, healthcare workers that were in the hospitals or in clinics and seeing these patients, I think maybe the mortality confrontation was maybe a little bit more real. Um, But I definitely think that, you know, that's something that I've heard from, from physician colleagues, especially those that were in the hospital, you know, I think Mm -hmm. it was not, but I think that was like, I mean, you mentioned earlier, vicarious trauma, like just seeing death over and over and over and over, it does sort of bring that to mind if it's not something you're already thinking about. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, this, the heaviness of that. I feel it in this moment. I can't even imagine uh, what that was like for people. Absolutely. And I know that a number of our listeners will have been there to sort of console the people's families. If they work in agencies, if they work in hospitals, it would be this revolving, like, okay, the person has died now. Can you go? And you may not be able to see them. So it's like a phone call, this distant kind of comfort in this face of all this helplessness and powerlessness to really save these people. I mean, that wasn't possible for millions. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But it was a refocusing for our whole society. It was very unifying in that way. I think for the world of like, what do we want to do now? Like who wants to keep living a life they don't really want? Absolutely. Yeah. I wonder if there's more you want to say to that about your journey. Yeah. So, you know, when you mentioned, you know, the the great resignation that we're that we're experiencing, there is a statistic I read recently that I think was really interesting because it sort of gave light to how things were even pre-COVID. And it was, I can't even remember what the percentage, but it was some absurdly high percentage of female physicians that after within six years of residency had either greatly reduced their work hours, they're working part-time or um, had completely left medicine entirely. And I think, you know, 
that was already happening pre-COVID. That's not that's not a post-COVID statistic. That's that was already happening. And I think that COVID certainly exacerbated it, but just that going through all of that training, all of you know, school, college, med school, residency, you know, that's what 11 years minimum of your life that you've spent. And then within six years of completing it, you're already done. That was just really an eye-opening statistic to me. And I'm now, I think, just at six years out of residency. It does, I can I can see why it happens. You know, when I ended up going into private practice, my goal was to move to part-time. I still was working full-time because I had, you know, part-time jobs to support my practice and, and all of these things. But it's very real. And I think it's something that, you know, probably in, in most careers, female physician, uh, physicians and other professionals are experiencing, but it's something that definitely is a big, a big issue. And then just the, the cost of that societally of when we have such highly educated people in all professions that are leaving their profession after a very short period of time, it just, it feels like there should be a better, a better way of keeping people active without it taking over our lives. Absolutely. I mentioned this in another podcast because this came up when speaking to another physician and it was like in business, I was reading a business book um, by Mike McCallowitz and he talked about how in the rest of business, the way that these healthcare organizations are structured is just maddening to understand when you have the, it's like you have the most trained and most expensive members of a business, you need to nurture them. He used the analogy of basically, it's like a football team, imagining that the quarterback is also the water boy, because there's so much that doctors are asked to do that is not, it's not necessary. Someone else could do the insurance stuff, talking to people who are trying to say that the billing won't go through. All of that could be done by someone else, but in hospitals and organizations, so much falls to the physician. And so it just burns them out. And I've seen this when I used to work in agencies. So much would land on my plate and my counterparts. And it was like, it didn't make sense. After I had done eight years, it was like, why after eight years of training would I do these things? It was just, it was just burning me out. So in other businesses outside of healthcare, this would be ludicrous because people would know where this was heading. So I'm so glad to hear this data is coming out. It's very sad data. But I hope that organizations start to look outside of the narrow model, right? Because there are places in the world where healthcare is run very differently than North America. It doesn't take reinventing an entire system. It actually takes just maybe look at another country, look at Europe, look at somewhere else in the world where people are maybe not being kind of chewed up and spit out the most trained people. Yeah, it just defies logic. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's, um, this is another thing that we, that we see a lot, the way that the organizations are run so different than other businesses. Physicians will often be when they sign a contract with a hospital system or some other healthcare organization, um, they're given a non-compete clause that they must sign or they cannot get this position. That basically bars you from practicing anywhere near your current practice. So you'd have to move. Um, for at least like a year or two. And in different states, they have variable enforcement, but in a lot of places, they are very enforceable. And it does set you up for failure because once you're trapped in that job, 
they can do it. They can change the terms. They can do whatever they want. And you don't really have any recourse because for you to leave the job is for you to stop working or to drastically change your you know, life environment. And it, it just, again, it's like a, a, it's something that would never happen in another industry. It, make, it just makes no sense. But healthcare is such an interesting industry because it's, you know, it's a business still at the end of the day, you know, people don't like to hear that. And I don't even like to hear that. Sometimes we want to think that we're in the business of just helping people, but for the business to be viable and able to help people, it has to function. <laughs> and so yeah. when there's all these external constraints from, you know, government regulation, insurance company sets the prices rather than the business setting the prices, like it, it makes it completely impossible to do the work that you're trying to do successfully. And the entire industry just is completely just makes no sense. No. So then that brings any of us to the choice to go into private practice. That's, that's where I think this leads. It can lead to burnout and leaving the field and sometimes, or just leaving the field independent of burnout to maintain health. I've had colleagues who also leave mental, like who just leave mental health the way you're kind of describing with, you know, medicine, but then there's private practice. Yeah. And private practice, you know, it doesn't solve all of these issues, but it does give you back a little bit of control. You know, for me, the reason I went into private practice was I was tired of being over scheduled. I wanted to just be able to spend the time with my patients that they needed, not have too many patients that I was responsible for because it's just, there's only so many hours in the day. And so you can either do your job poorly or work all day long. Uh, there's really no alternative. And so I was, that was my goal was just to try to reduce the number of people that I was responsible for and give myself more time with each patient so I could actually do my job well. And it's still, you know, it's a moving target because just because you're in private practice doesn't mean the hardness of medicine or of mental health or, or whatever your field is goes away, but it does just get back some of that control. But it is, you know, it is hard because then you're, you're usually functioning in a way outside of the insurance system. So that takes a while to find people who are patients who are willing to, to go outside that system for their care, but they're out there, you know, there's people who really value their physical and mental health and they want to have someone actually take care of them and they've seen how the system is. And so they are willing to look outside that insurance system to get what they need. But it is harder as a business owner because it's not like you can just hang your shingle and have a full practice <laughs> overnight. It takes it takes a lot of time and definitely in the future. That is something I want to touch on more is because I've now on to my third, I would say second or third private practice. And I own a group practice now. And it's yeah, there is some strategy there. Absolutely. There's vision and you need strategy to implement it. But you said something important. The people listening are mo are mostly clinicians, and I think the fact that you offer this outside of a system that is broken, uh, then there's going to be probably a lot of their clients or patients who need something like that. And you said how your practice in is informed by a health at every size approach. I wonder how would people refer to you? Yeah, so I actually have. Most of the patients that are referred to me are referred by either dietitians or therapists, um, primarily in the eating disorder community. I have a lot of people that will refer to me. And, you know, the ones I know locally, 
they just shoot me an email or send me, you know, the patient, uh, the patient's information. But I do, I have a website where patients can also self-refer um, or a um, clinician could refer their patient to the website and they can enroll it for in the practice on the, on the website. Okay. I'll make sure that that's in the show notes so that everybody has that because that's in Canada where I live, it is difficult to refer a patient to a new doctor. Our system just does not really support that well. Once you give up your doctor that was assigned to you by the government, you may be hard-pressed to find another. You may be reliant on walk-ins. So because we're not in the private medical system, it's a little harder, but it's not impossible. But So I love this idea of what you're presenting because we have such limitations on how to access that. So I think that's wonderful. I know that it's probably going to be a change for people, but I'm very excited that this exists and that people are hearing more about it, especially yeah. with a mental health focus that you have, because the unrecognized trauma is usually the root cause of complex and chronic physical health conditions. We know that the research supports that the ACE studies, things like that. It's pretty clear. It's, it's very related to trauma. Absolutely. And so many of my patients, that's the conversation that we end up having. You know, I think that's the sort of thing that there really isn't time for in a 10 or 15 minute visit. You know, if you, if you go in and the doctor kind of doesn't want to bring that up, Mm -hmm. (laughs) even if they suspect it, um, because that's a longer conversation, you know, no one wants to, to start that sort of conversation and then cut you off midway and say, okay, it's time for me to go to my next patient now. But it's so important because I think even though, you know, as clinicians and healthcare providers, we all know this, um, and the patient may know this as well, but it's making that connection for them, I think, is so healing because it, the, the self-blame that a lot of people have over their health, you know, especially people who are in larger bodies or who have some chronic health conditions, the wellness industry advertisements all say like, if you just eat this way and exercise this way and do this, you will be healthy and you won't need any medications. And that's just not true. Mm -hmm. Um, There's so many other factors at play. There's genes, there's trauma to sort of minimize the impact of all of that and just prescribe a diet or a, you know, exercise plan or whatever. It's, it makes no sense, but that takes more of a conversation and really digging in and making that connection for people. And, um, that just does not happen in 15 minutes. No, it does not happen in 15 minutes. Absolutely <laughs> not. All the epigenetic factors, you could never fit that into <laughs> to 15 minutes. <laughs> no, but they are so at play. And yeah, as somebody who's looked in understanding the billions of dollars that go into the diet industry, and then the stats that show that 1% of people achieve their goals going through that model, of dieting and that 1% of that 1% actually maintain any weight loss. It's like, you got to rethink things. If you're thinking on a weight loss way, even it, it, that's none of that is going to work because there are so many complicated, no, not complicated, complex, complex problems need a complex solution and they need a lot of support. So I think what you're doing is just beautiful. And so I have a question. What does mental health revolution mean to you? I think we're getting there. For me, it means that people are understanding of and valuing of their mental health and how that impacts the rest of their life, taking active steps to achieve mental wellness. 
taking care of themselves, taking care of their family members, you know, workplaces that are supportive of you being able to do that. And I do think that in the last few years, there has been the beginnings of that. Um, you know, people are are really starting to understand the importance of you know getting adequate rest, getting adequate sleep. <laughs> you know, emo- the emotional regulation that comes from that, and the dysregulation that comes from the lack of that. And so we're we're getting there, and it's exciting. But I do think I do think it takes not just on an individual level valuing it on a governmental and institutional level as well corporate levels, you know, keep keeping that in mind as part of our taking care of fellow humans. Yes. And so I hear hope there because it seems like a revolution in that way has started where people, I know for mental health referrals, they've gone up incredibly, which presents some difficulties with meeting the demand, but the stigma used to outweigh uh, the ability for people to reach out. So it seems that now even in my career, I can see how even pre-COVID employers were starting to recognize, I think, the influence of trauma on people's ability to perform at work and even be at work, be present. So there is something happening there. And I think COVID definitely upped the ante for people to realize, yeah, if people aren't looking after their mental health, it's very difficult to do anything else in the way we want. Yeah. I like to end with this two-sided coin thinking about one side is a time where you held yourself back from fully living a dream or desire. And we've talked about many reasons why in these fields, it's not easy to really go after those things. And then the other side of the coin is when have you really gone after a dream or desire, maybe taken a risk? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think going through the college, med school, residency, kind of hamster wheel, (laughs) you don't really have time to stop and think even about what you might want. And for a lot of people, you know, becoming a doctor is their dream. And this, these are the, just the necessary steps to get there. But it does sort of limit your ability to think about any other aspect of your personality because you are so focused. And, and you know, for me, you know, I had several traumatic experiences during, you know, college and medical school that I sort of just suppressed to get through it. I think for me, it did take, you know, becoming burned out from my job and taking a you know taking a leap of faith and stepping completely out of the system and the hamster wheel to recognize that there's other options out there and then all the support that i received from you know other private practice physicians other physicians who are in various outside of healthcare businesses as well and starting to see some of the possibilities that are out there and then also you know working through my trauma that I ignored for many years, um, all of that has has definitely helped me to to come there. So that burnout was sort of the the tipping point, but was worth it in the end, I guess. Yeah, I just my last episode that just released was called the wake up call, and that's really what it's about. Is this clinician talking about how it was the wake up call? Yeah, I can hear what you're saying too. That there's just this frantic kind of motion in medical school. Of just get through it. Yeah. So after all that, and it sounds like you, you feel a little like burnout was your, your chance to reevaluate all of these things that are not part of our cultural norms to evaluate any of that when you're on that hamster wheel. Well, what a brave story. Thank I appreciate you. it. You're welcome. I really appreciate your time today. And I'm wondering if there's anything you'd like the listeners to know 
before we sign off? Uh, no, I would just, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. If anyone's interested in following my story as my practice is growing and, and changing and evolving, I am on social media. My handles are uh, Rebecca Barron's MD on Instagram and TikTok. So. Beautiful. I'll make sure that that's in the show notes along with your website. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to Therapist Expanded. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast to help more of our colleagues join the revolution.